Well, hey everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or tuning in online. Uh, thank you for being with us. We're in the third week of a series that we've called Why Christmas? And as many of you know, the series is all about why God sent Jesus on that first Christmas. And as we've noted, that why has everything to do with how much he loves you. Um, and uh, we said this in the first week, and I keep, you know, getting people sending me funny pictures, but um, as a result of that, the, the first Christmas really had to do with God's love for you. Though it's totally fair to say that Jesus is the reason for the season, I think it's also more than fair to say that you are the reason for the season. Because if you think about it, if you didn't need to be rescued from your sin, there wouldn't have ever been a Christmas. That first Christmas really was for your benefit and for my benefit and for the benefit of everyone everywhere. And to be honest, I, I think that Christmas, first Christmas, benefited us in a number of ways. And that's sort of the framework for this series. We're exploring four different ways that Christmas benefited us of four answers to the question, why Christmas? And today, of course, is number three, and then the fourth one we'll do on Christmas Eve. But in case you're joining us for the first time today, I want to take a moment and catch you up on where we've been. In week one of the series, we explored the first answer to the question, why Christmas? At least the first one I came up with. And we said this, we said, Christmas is God's way of confirming his presence in our lives. And this is a really big deal, uh, because we all experience times, seasons, when he's silent, he seems distant, and we suspect that he's absent. But see, that story of the first Christmas affirms that whatever our situation, he is still watching, he is still listening, and even when he doesn't feel like it, his plan for our life is still moving forward. So that was our first why of Christmas uh, then last week, we explored how Christmas is God's way of introducing us to his amazing grace. Uh, if you were with us, you remember we took a look at that first chapter of a man named John's account of the life of Jesus. And in that chapter, uh, John describes Jesus not only as the creator in flesh, but also he said Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And we noted how that was not what ancient people were expecting. They would expect that a God that came to earth would be full of justice and truth. But Jesus was full of grace and truth, and he embodied that amazing grace as he interacted with broken people throughout his time on earth. Uh, Christmas is God's way of introducing us to his amazing grace. That was our second why of Christmas. And with the rest of our time together today, we get to chase down another why of Christmas. And, and to get us going in that direction, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I want to ask you a question. So we'll start with the story. It goes like this. Uh, a few years ago, some close friends of mine completed an international adoption. I don't know if you've ever had anybody in your life do that, but it was a truly massive accomplishment. Uh, years before the international adoption, they had been on a mission trip, and they had met this four-month-old baby girl at an orphanage who'd been born with a massive physical disability. And when they talked to the orphanage director and they said, you know, what happens to someone like her? Like what sort of narrative plays out with her life? They were informed that someone with her significant physical limitations had virtually no hope for a better life in this third world country. And my friends described being on the plane ride on the way back home and just that God was nudging them, maybe even more than nudging, that they needed to do something. They were bothered endlessly by the fact that this little girl 
couldn't do anything to make her situation better. And so they decided that they were going to try to bring her into their family, like leaving there and bring her here. And as it turned out, uh, that process was far more complicated than they could have imagined. Uh, they faced challenges with the government in the country where she was coming from and the government in which they were bringing her to. Can you imagine having issues with the United States government? Anyway, um, they had to fill out a mountain of paperwork and even obtain initial commitments from medical professionals to help this young girl with her physical limitations should they be allowed to bring her to the United States. I'm telling you, like, as this process unfolded, countless prayers were raised, thousands of dollars were spent, all in the hopes of giving this little girl a better future. And uh, the journey to adoption finally culminated in a federal building in downtown Grand Rapids when this young girl joined my friend's family. And uh, Sarah Ann and I were there that day in the courtroom, and I'm telling you, there was not a dry eye in the house. Because we got to watch as this little girl with incredible physical disabilities who couldn't really do anything to impact her own situation was rescued. And it's no exaggeration to say that as the gavel fell that afternoon, her life changed forever. Now, she didn't feel very different at that point, but everything had changed. And I wanted to start there because, well, I want to ask you to think about something. I want to ask you a question. And the question goes like this. Do you think my friends have a greater capacity to love than God? And I know intellectually you say, no, of course not, that's ridiculous. But emotionally, like lean into this. If we're being honest, I suspect many of us, we aren't so sure because of what we were taught about God while we were growing up. Like certainly he loved us, but, but there was some other things that sort of maybe messed the picture up a little bit. And that's why with the rest of our time today, I want to show you what I believe to be one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible. And it's found in an ancient letter that we call Galatians. Galatia was a region in sort of uh, eastern Turkey in ancient times. But it was originally addressed to Jewish Christians who were trying to figure out which of the rules of the Jewish religion should apply to non-Jewish Christians. And I know that's not something we've ever thought about because we all like bacon and we wouldn't even ask the question, right? But I'm telling you, in the early church, this was a really big deal. And if you think about it, it actually makes sense that it was a really big deal. I mean, Jesus and his first disciples were all Jewish, and so were many of the early converts to Christianity. And so for these Jewish Christians, it it just didn't feel right for them to abandon all of the religious rules and customs and rituals and traditions that had directed and marked their lives since childhood. And so they began to teach that in order to become a Christian, non-Jewish people like you and me had to take up the obligations of the Old Testament law. And in response to this teaching that was happening in this church in Galatia, an early pastor named Paul, who wrote many, many of the letters and made it into the New Testament of the Bible, um, and Paul wrote a letter to them. Paul himself had formerly served as a leader in the Jewish religious establishment. And he wrote this letter to clarify the question that was really behind this teaching. What was a Gentile believer's relationship to the Old Testament law supposed to be? And, and he answers this question by leveraging the incredible reality of what happened on that first Christmas morning. So 
Paul began this section of this letter where he's making this argument with these words. He wrote that God sent Jesus to earth when the set time had fully come. In other words, Paul wrote that God had the first Christmas marked on his calendar for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. Hundreds of years during which many Jewish people had begun to suspect that God had forgotten about them. And as a result of that, they had walked away from their faith. They had sort of integrated into the Greco-Roman culture. But Paul affirmed, like in the clearest way possible, that that was not the case. From the perspective of heaven, the first Christmas was right on schedule. And in spite of what they felt, God's plan was never on pause. Okay, so check out what he writes next. He says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son... Born of a woman, and then look at this, born under the law. And this is huge. Like, if you don't understand the backstory, it's really easy to miss what Paul is make, the argument Paul is making here. What he's saying is that Jesus was born as a Jewish man to a Jewish mother accountable to the Jewish law. And you say, well, what is the Jewish law? Well, there were 613 commands found in the Old Testament of the Bible. A whole bunch of to-dos and a whole bunch of to-don'ts, to Right? And this meant that Jesus, as he lived as a Jewish man, he lived as a Torah-observant Jew. He lived under the law, which again was the source of much of the confusion in the early church. I mean, if Jesus kept the Jewish law, and he did, and he called people to follow him, which he did, and if these people were actually going to follow him, didn't it require them to follow the Jewish law as well? And this is so fascinating because Paul was a teacher of the Jewish law before meeting the resurrected Jesus. According to Paul, the answer to that question is no. Paul wrote, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and look at this, to redeem those under the law. And the Greek word translated redeem in this verse is really interesting, at least to me who likes to look up this kind of stuff. But the word redeem here was originally a business term. And it meant to purchase or to buy back. So what Paul is saying here is that God sent Jesus to redeem the Jewish people from the debts that they had incurred through their inability to follow the Jewish law. And then he set them free from the obligations of the Jewish law. Obligations that I think it's worth noting they had never been able to keep anyway. Said a bit differently, God sent Jesus to rescue them from a religious system that could never ultimately rescue them from their sin. It was a system that pointed to the one who would rescue them from their sin. And now as great as all that was, as Paul continued, he gave these Jewish Christians some even better news. After informing them that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He wrote that God's purpose in sending Jesus was in fact way bigger than just paying off the sins of Jewish Christians once and for all. As unbelievable as it must have sounded to them, Paul wrote that God sent Jesus that we might receive adoption to sonship. And the sonship concept here is actually gender neutral. Sonship, daughtership, which I don't even know if that's a word, but you get what I'm saying, right? Paul wrote that God wanted to do more than just forgive the sins of Jewish Christians. From God's perspective, it wasn't enough to redeem them from their debts. He desired a new sort of relationship with them. And that's amazing. 
because if you think about it, he didn't have to offer them that sense of relationship. I mean, it's totally possible to forgive someone and never develop a healthy relationship with them because of what they did that what you had to forgive them for. I mean, just a fun example. I mean, think about it, a courtroom situation. A judge can look over a bench at a defendant and say, your debt has been canceled and you're free to go. But see, there's no promise of relationship that develops after that interaction. The, the judge and this defendant may never see one another again. They probably wouldn't. So as I imagine, Paul, in trying to communicate God's heart towards people, reached for an image from first century Roman culture and then leveraged that image in an attempt to communicate what God did by sending Jesus to earth. Like what was his end game? And he informed his readers that God wanted nothing less than to adopt them as his children. Now, before we go any farther, um, you need to know that adoption was very different in the first century Roman world than it is in ours today. I mean, when we think of adoption, for the vast majority of us, we tend to think about babies and toddlers. But you see, in Paul's day, nobody adopted babies or toddlers because it was practical. Like, babies often died, and you couldn't really tell who a toddler was going to become. And I mean, I had four of toddlers in my house for a while there, and I'm telling you, at times, they can seem very evil, okay? <laughs> I don't think it's just mine. Yeah, they got better most of the time. But anyway, um, so babies and toddlers weren't adopted in Roman culture. Instead, in Roman culture, it was very common for rich and powerful people to adopt full-grown adults. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, they, they adopted full-grown adults that they found worthy of carrying on their name and their influence. Like, if they didn't feel like their biological children had what it took, they could pick another son or daughter. And, and, and you say, well, how prevalent was this? I think it happened a lot, and in fact, I love this, but historians record that after his death, a famous Roman dictator named Julius Caesar, inventor of a haircut and a salad dressing, <laughs> adopted his 19-year-old grandnephew Octavian as his son. After his death, in his will, he adopted Octavian as his son. And practically, and you just got to put yourself here for a second, this meant that during the public reading of Julius Caesar's will, Octavian learned that he had inherited all of Julius Caesar's titles, land, and wealth. That was a good day. He literally became the most powerful man in the world in a moment. And he was even given a new name by which he is still known. We actually read his name every single Christmas Eve. His name is Caesar Augustus. And again, you've heard of him because he was the Roman emperor when Jesus was born in a little town called Bethlehem. So anyway, that's how Paul's original audience would have viewed adoption. And so obviously the implications of Paul leveraging this image to that initial audience, they were staggering. I mean, Paul's first readers would have understood that, that somehow, after placing their faith in what Jesus had accomplished when he died on the cross, somehow after placing their faith in Jesus, God found them worthy of being adopted into his family. He redeemed them from their debts, and then he adopted them as his kids. It's like that would have been unbelievable. But, but Paul was clear that is the sort of relationship that God wanted 
with his people. And Paul went on, and then he says this, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. In other, in other words, Paul wrote here that because of Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus, an entirely sort, a new sort of relationship is possible between people and God. Under the terms of God's old covenant with ancient Israel that was established at Mount Sinai with Moses, right? Peace with God was maintained through people's faithfulness to God's laws. If you wanted to remain at peace with God, you followed the rules. But see, under the terms of God's new covenant that was established the moment Jesus died on the cross, peace with God is maintained through God's faithfulness alone and apart from any obligations of obedience to the Jewish law. And that's why Paul writes that God sent the spirit of his son into the hearts of those who place their faith in Jesus, the spirit that allows Jesus' followers to address God as Abba, Father, and it's a term of intimacy. Now, I love how Paul concludes this section, kind of concludes this argument. He says this, so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. In other words, Paul wrote that if someone is in Christ, they are no longer a slave to the Jewish law. They no longer need, and they no longer need to relate to God primarily as a rule maker. And they would have understood this argument because in the Roman world, slaves related to their masters primarily by learning what they could do and couldn't do and by understanding the consequences of disobedience. And according to Paul, that was the sort of relationship that ancient Israel had with God, past tense, under the terms of the Jewish law. But he goes on to say that because of their faith in Jesus, they're no longer slaves to the Jewish law. They're sons and daughters of God, and they've been invited to address him as Heavenly Father. And he goes on to say they're no longer to look at God through the lens of their failures now they're to look at God through the lens of their identity as his adopted children and heirs to his kingdom. All that to say from the perspective of Jewish Christians when Jesus came, everything changed. And um, as I was preparing this talk, I remember I got to this point and I said, okay, at least a few of y'all are going to be paying attention and you're going to have a question right now because, man, as fascinating as all of that is, uh, so far we've been talking about what Paul wrote to early Jewish Christians who were struggling with which obligations from the Jewish law were to be binding on Gentile Jesus followers. And it would be more than fair for you to ask the question, okay, Bible boy, fantastic, what does any of that have to do with me and me, right? And as it turns out, um, and this is amazing news. It has everything to do with us. And uh, here's why I can say that so confidently. Immediately before the passage we just explored, uh, when the set time had come, God's son, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the reading was under the law. Just before that passage, check out what Paul writes. He said, in Christ Jesus, in other words, now he's, you're kind of broadening it out. Anyone who's in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God, and look at this, through faith. Not obedience, through faith. 
And then here, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Wait, wait, Paul, are you saying that the Jews are still in because of obedience, but the Gentiles are in because of faith? No, everyone who's in is in because of faith in Jesus. It's by grace through faith. That's the gospel. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. See, they lived in this culture where men were seen as having more value than women. And Paul writes, no, 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 no. In Christ, you are all one. In Christ, if you belong to Christ, you are one. He goes on, he says, for you are all one. If you belong to Christ, then you are, and check this out, not only adopted as kids, heirs according to the promise. In other words, not only are non-Jewish Christians under absolutely no obligation to follow the rules outlined in the Old Testament, by placing their faith in Jesus, they along with Jewish Christians have been adopted into the family of God and are his heirs. And it's almost like you see Paul calling these two groups together and saying, listen, you're all brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters fight. So this is okay. But you need to understand that moving forward, it's all about Jesus. You're all restored to relationship with God in the same way by having your sins forgiven by embracing what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. And I'm telling you, this is an absolutely stunning answer to the question of why Christmas. I like to phrase the answer like this. Um, God sent his son so that you could become his child. An adult child who's been forgiven and accepted because of your faith in Jesus, regardless of what you've done in your past, and even regardless of what you do in your future. An adult child who can approach God as their heavenly father. I was thinking about something this week, and I loved it. Um, there's a French poet who wrote a song you all know very well, Oh Holy Night. We will sing it on Christmas Eve. Spoiler alert. You're like, if we didn't sing it, I'd get emails. I know. Oh Holy Night. But We all know the words, but I'm just going to put them up on the screen anyway. Check this out. The author writes, Long lay the world. In sin and error pining, and I had to look that up. I did spell it right. If you do two ends, it's pinning. It's not pining, but I, yeah. Anyway, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and look at this, and the soul felt its worth. I, I don't know what you think you're worth to God. Um, if you had dark chapters in your past, you probably don't feel like you're worth much to God. And I don't know how you pray. I mean, you may very well still pray to a God that you see primarily as a lawmaker. And you may still even try to barter with him to get him to do what you want him to do. But I'm telling you, if you're still doing that, then you're still relating to God as a slave. A slave to the law. And the good news is that that's not why Jesus came he came on that first Christmas because God wanted to invite you into something far better, something far more powerful. Through faith in Jesus, God wants to make you one of his kids and an heir to his kingdom. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing in your head, but, but I'm telling you, if you ever get that into your heart, it will wreck you in all sorts of wonderful ways. I mean, if it ever goes from like a theological category, something you understand, to an emotional reality, it will change the way you pray. 
It will change the way you respond to temptation. It will change the way that you respond to your own failure and it will change the way that you respond to the failure of others. It will change the way that you view people around you and it will change the way you view yourself. In fact, it will radically improve your sense of self-worth because if you think about it, and I just love this, do you know what you're worth to God? You're worth Christmas. He loves you that much. He really does. And so as we move towards Christmas Eve, my prayer is that you would take some time and really reflect on that. And I know it's a mystery. And I know it seems too good to be true. But God really did send his son to offer you a chance to be adopted as one of his children. And once you are adopted as one of his kids, you are always one of his kids. You can be a disobedient kid. We all know other people that have those. (laughs) But you will always be his kid because you're worth Christmas. And we're going to pick it up there on Christmas Eve. And so right now, I'd just love to invite you to stand. And uh, if you're here today and you just desire to, to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, we'll have some friends under the screen to the left after I dismiss. Uh, please take advantage of that. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is a wonder in the Christmas season that you saw people in need and moved in our direction in a way that has the potential to change everything. And so we just want to take a moment and thank you and bless you. Thank you for seeing us at our worst and meeting us with your best. And we thank you for that baby in a manger. (laughs) We thank you for his life. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for the truth that he taught. And we thank you for his death and resurrection. For all of us that are in your son by our faith, thank you for allowing us to call you Abba, Father. May the light of Jesus reflect through us this Christmas season. And so we bless you, we thank you. It is in his name, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We will see you next week for Christmas Eve.